Howdy folks, this is Matt Sewell. You're listening to episode 36 of the Popecast, the podcast about popes for history buffs who don't have the time nor the interest to pick up dry, dusty history books. Our pontiff this week did one of the most infamous deeds in all of papal history. It was so memorable that he is the last pope to have taken his particular name ever since, and he was the butt of a joke at the election of our very own Pope Francis for it. His crime? He suppressed the Society of Jesus. This week, it's the 248th successor of St. Peter, the Pope who canceled the Jesuits, Pope Clement XIV. At the dawn of the 1700s, Giovanni Vincenzo Antonio Ganganelli was born in Sant'Arcangelo di Romagna on the northeastern shore of Italy. He was, ironically, educated by the Jesuits as a young boy before choosing to enter the conventual Franciscans as a novice at the age of 18, and he took the name Lorenzo Francesco. He made his profession as a full member of that order a year later and continued his studies over the next decade before being both ordained a priest and granted a doctorate in theology in 1731. Father Ganganelli was a professor in various parts of Italy for the 10 years following his ordination before being called back to Rome in 1741, where he was put in charge of his former college and also elected Definitor General of the Conventual Franciscan Order, more or less an advisory role to the order's head honcho. The Eternal City became home, apparently, for the rest of Ganganelli's life after that. Twice his order tried to put him in charge of the whole order in 1753 and 1758, but twice he refused. There was rumor that he was holding out for a higher office, but his reputation as a good and humble friar would suggest otherwise. He befriended Pope Benedict XIV in 1758, at which point the Pope had him investigate whether or not, of all things, the infamous blood libel of the Jews, or the ritual murder accusation as it was also called, was true in the case of a report from Poland. Now, this was a centuries-old wives' tale that the Jews required human blood for their ritual observances. And Father Ganganelli's investigation, thankfully, uh, and obviously proved just that. It was a load of baloney. A year later, after Benedict XIV's death and Clement XIII's accession to the throne, Father Ganganelli was given the Cardinal's red hat. Apparently at the insistence in another stroke of irony of none other than Father Lorenzo Ricci, the Superior General of the Jesuit Order. It was in this role that he would serve as the lone friar in the College of Cardinals until his own election to the papacy in 1769 at the age of 63. Now, it's it's here that we'll need to provide a bit of backstory to the historical context in which Clement XIV was entering. Europe in the mid-18th century was hardly all lollipops and gumdrops on the, the philosophy, the belief front, especially as it pertained to our topic of our episode today, the Jesuits. Now, historian Steve Weidenkopf wrote a, a fantastic recap of this time in history for Catholic Answers, which I'll link to in the show notes if you want uh, some further reading. But for the sake of time, I'll just kind of cover the 10,000-foot the view of what Clement Fourteenth was walking into to start his papacy. The Jesuits, by this point, had been around for over two centuries, remember, and they were inarguably the most powerful force for evangelization and education in the Catholic faith anywhere in the world. Since their creation by St. Ignatius of Loyola and his merry band of companions in 1540, they had been intrepid missionaries willing to go literally anywhere the Lord and his church asked them to go. And the Jesuit order by the 1750s then was massive in size and was incredibly influential all over Europe as a result. Professor Weidenkopf writes, quote, By the 18th century, there were over 20,000 Jesuits 
running nearly 700 universities, colleges, and seminaries. The Pope and many secular rulers loved them, but with power and influence, as the Jesuits had in terms of uh, the church, obviously comes jealousy from one's enemies who lurk in the corners and the shadows, and the growing Enlightenment movement was a perfect excuse for those enemies to pounce. There were several secular kings who were suspicious of the popes themselves, so they distrusted the Jesuits by extension, who were fiercely loyal to whomever was in Peter's chair, seeing the whole lot of them as obstacles, effectively, in the way of their plans for what we might call world domination. What started as political pressure on the popes to do something about the Jesuits would lead to more extreme measures of all-out expulsion of the society by the crowns in Portugal, France, and Spain to start. And it all came to a head with the conclave of 1769 following the death of Clement XIII, a fierce defender of the Jesuits in his own right, to be sure. At the conclave, there were 47 cardinals, and as the Catholic Encyclopedia notes, quote, rarely if ever has a conclave been the victim of such overweening interference, base intrigues, and unwarranted pressure, end quote. The wheeling and dealing began with the kings, cardinals attempting to exert their influence, probably no shortage of name-calling, we might think, and some breakage of canon law, I would imagine, what with a proposal to require that the new pope, Pinky promised to suppress the Jesuits, or else he can't be pope. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. In any case, out of all of this mess came an intriguing attention on Cardinal Ganganelli, who did his best to please both sides without rubber-stamping either camp's uh, views and beliefs. He ended up being elected nearly unanimously somehow, the lone vote against being his own, which he cast uh, for what it's worth for the late Clement XIII's nephew, who was also a fellow cardinal. Taking the name of Clement XIV, Cardinal Ganganelli was elected the 249th Bishop of Rome on May 18, 1769, the beginning of a five-year pontificate. Clement found a fair amount of success in smoothing over the relations with Catholic princes throughout Europe as he started out, in particular uh, regaining the lost territories of Avignon and Benevento for the Papal States, which had been previously lost. And in general, Clement understood that the Church was facing a formidable foe in the Enlightenment and the so-called Age of Reason, and so she needed to remain united to be able to face it down, and so that was his kind of number one priority, for better or for worse. That desire, though, proved wishful thinking. The princes had their eyes set on one thing and one thing only, and their continued pressure on the diplomatically feeble pope caused him to make one too many concessions that he was unable to walk back. Little by little, the privileges of the Jesuits were taken away in and around Rome, and the death knell came when Spain threatened to break from the church if the pope didn't act decisively in their favor. That act was a direct cause of the infamous papal brief of suppression, Dominus Ac Redemptor, which spelled curtains for the Society of Jesus. It was July 21st of 1773, the date on which it was officially promulgated, and a month after the document was signed initially, it was just prior to the Feast of St. Ignatius. It's said that as the bells rang at the Jesu, the Jesuit headquarters and church in Rome, the Pope himself, upon hearing them, said, quote, they are not ringing for the saints, but for the dead, end quote. As far as what caused Clement to descend to what Eamon Duffy called the papacy's most shameful hour, the Catholic Encyclopedia, noting that the Pope's actions were a desperate attempt to preserve peace and unity in the church, says it well. Quote, he loved the Jesuits, who had been his first teachers, his trusty advisors, the best defenders of the church over which he ruled. No personal animosity guided his action. The Jesuits themselves, in agreement with all serious historians, attribute their suppression to Clement's weakness of character, 
unskilled diplomacy and that kind of goodness of heart, which is more bent on doing what is pleasing than what is right. He was not built to hold his head above the tempest. His hesitations and his struggles were of no avail against the enemies of the order, and his friends found no better excuse for him than that of St. Alphonsus. What could the poor Pope do when all the king's courts insisted upon the suppression? End quote. I mean, heck, the, the Jesuit father, Giulio Cordaro, one of Clement's contemporaries, he was living at the same time uh, as the suppression, understood the Pope and didn't, didn't even blame him himself, being a Jesuit, saying... Uh, Father Cordera said, quote, I think we should not condemn the pontiff who, after so many hesitations, has judged it his duty to suppress the society of Jesus. I love my order as much as any man. Yet, had I been in the Pope's place, I should probably have acted as he did. The company founded and maintained for the good of the church perished for the same good. It could not have ended more gloriously, end quote. Stuff like this happens, right? The church and the world are alike in that they're both made up of imperfect sinful human persons, equally susceptible to ignorance and fear as they are the temptations to be blinded by the empty promises of power and prestige. And at least it had a somewhat happy ending. The Jesuits ended up finding refuge in certain countries ruled by non-Catholic monarchs, among them Frederick of Prussia, most of Germany, and Catherine of Russia. And in 1804, Pope Pius VII, one of my personal favorites and a previous Popecast uh, feature, officially restored the order in 1814. Obviously, we knew it was not permanent, given that we have Jesuits around us today, including the Pope himself. The last months of Clement XIV's life were said to have been racked with guilt and bitterness, understandably, at his failures regarding suppression of the Jesuit order. And yet, for all his imperfections and stresses while Pope, it appears that Clement was nevertheless granted with a happy death. He was bedridden on September 10th, 1774, a little over a year after the infamous incident. He was given the last sacraments on September 21st and expired the following day. What's most striking about this Pope's death, however, is that St. Alphonsus Liguori, the great doctor of the church, founder of the Redemptorist Order and a bishop at this particular point in history, reportedly bilocated to be at Clement's bedside in his last hours. And in case that sounds nuts, multiple witnesses on uh, both sides of the bilocation attested to his presence of being in two places at once, or at least appearing in two places at once. And a friend of St. Alphonsus, in fact, written in the Tan Publishers book, Mysteries, Marvels, Miracles, Recounts the Story. In the morning of September 21st, 1774, Alphonsus, after saying Mass, threw himself in his armchair as he was not want to do. He appeared prostrate and absorbed in thought, making no movement, speaking no word, and asking no one for anything. He remained in that state for all that day and the night that followed, and all the while took no food and made no sign that he would undress. The servants who saw him in this position, wondering what was to happen, stood by the door of his room, unwilling to go in. On the morning of the 22nd, he had not changed his attitude, and the household did not know what to think. The fact is that he was in a prolonged ecstasy, Later on in the morning, however, he rang the bell to announce that he wished to say Mass. At that signal, it was not only Brother Romito who came in as usual, but everyone in the, in the house ran to the bishop's room. On seeing so many people, the saint asked in surprised tones, what was the matter? What is the matter? They answered. This is the second day that you have not spoken, eaten, or given any sign of life. You are right, said Alphonsus, but you do not know that I have been assisting the Pope, who has just died. Shortly afterwards, it became known that Clement XIV had died on September 22nd at 7 o'clock in the morning, at the very time that the ecstasy of St. Alphonsus came to an end. 
I'll just say it. Bilocation has to be at the top of my spiritual gift wish list, but I digress. What a story. As far as Clement's legacy, no one, understandably, has really ever forgotten this biggest blunder. But even sadder, perhaps, is that history has forgotten the rest of who Clement was. An otherwise good-natured man by reputation who humbly lived his life as a friar in service to the church and the Lord without apparently succumbing to the age-old sins of nepotism and simony that his brother Pope so often fell into. No small feat, especially as listeners to the Popecast, I'm sure, will understand. And, but speaking of the blunder, as one last quick story, it was referenced uh, at the very beginning of the show that in 2013, when after being elected as the next successor of St. Peter, Pope Francis, the first Jesuit pope in history, was uh, was approached by some brother cardinals and uh, made the suggestion that he become Clement the Fifteenth, joking that it might be revenge on the prior Clement for suppressing the society. But I would say Francis was a good choice. I'm sure he just laughed. To take us out this week, as is the custom here at the Popecast, here's a short excerpt from a letter of uh, Clement the Fourteenth himself that he wrote to all the bishops of the world in 1769, speaking of his awe at the task that's been laid before him in the office of St. Peter. Quote, when we contemplate our position and consider the gravity of its burden, we are deeply disturbed both because of the magnitude of the task itself and the weakness of our resources. We seem to have been called into the depths of the sea from the peace of a quiet life, as if from a most safe harbor to rule the bark of blessed Peter, to be shaken by great floods and to be all but submerged by the force of the tempest. Truly, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It was not because of human counsel, but rather by his inscrutable judgment that such a care had been unexpectedly laid upon us. Therefore, we are buoyed up by a certain hope that he who has chosen us will himself remove our fear and infirmity and will hear us in the depths of the storm. The memory of Peter trembling in the sea and of the Lord reproving his little faith will confirm us in the same trust. Surely he wishes us to put aside all doubt about obtaining his help and to act with the hope of his grace rather than from fear of our weakness. End quote. Words, surely, we could all stand to ponder for our own lives. Well, that's it for this week. We've got a couple of shout-outs before we end this uh, this episode from our iTunes reviews. Two new ones have actually come in since our last episode. Really grateful uh, for all of you. We always like to read those out at the end of the show and give a shout-out. So one... From Christensen J, they say, This is an incredibly interesting and fun podcast. It is well-produced, honest, and packed full of history. I believe this podcast achieves its goal set forth in the first episode that anyone who is interested in the office of the papacy will enjoy this content. Thank you, Christensen J. Then the last one was from The SKP Machine. The title of it was Pope-tastic. Um... Thank you. The podcast highlights the good and does not shy away from the bad. The more we know about church history, especially papal history, the more astonishing is God's protection of his church, despite all the attempts of popes, priests, and laity to destroy her across the ages. Couldn't agree more on how marvelous these stories are. And uh, again, thank you to both of you for leaving reviews. If you'd like to uh, leave your thoughts as well, leave us a rating um, or review, at least subscribe. Um, You can find us on iTunes. Uh, It takes 30 seconds to a minute. We're we're really grateful for anything um, you'd like to leave there. Make sure that more people can find the podcast when searching for Uh, podcast. And the the last thing here is if you'd like to help us continue producing these episodes, um, they're always going to be free to listen to, but they're not free to produce. Uh, Please consider joining us on Patreon by going to our website, thepopecast.fm and clicking on the become a patron link. Patrons get early access to every new podcast episode and receive an exclusive podcast sticker. Uh, And as some extra incentive folks at the Linus tier, we'll have a question answered on a future 
episode. Uh, those giving it the Clement tier, $4 per episode, get there to pick their popes of choice for two future episodes. Uh, and then regardless, we have it set up to only uh, charge you when there's new content, so it's not a monthly uh, recurring uh, gift. It's just based on when there's actually new content. So you're only paying when we are churning out episodes. So check it out yet. If you haven't the popecast.fm under the become a patron link. And then lastly, in between episodes, you can of course find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at the popecast. So as we close this episode, we recall the memory and words of Pope Clement the 14th and ask for the courage to stand up for what is right and good, even in the face of uncertainty and fear until next time. <laughs>